Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Birma. Wrigley Field is one of a handful of sports stadiums to have transcended its athletic purpose to become a true American landmark. Nestled in its neighborhood on the north side of Chicago, the park may be a throwback to a bygone era of baseball, but a recent renovation has positioned it for a long future. Gregory Wolf edited a new book from the Society for American Baseball Research entitled Wrigley Field, The Friendly Confines at Clark and Addison. I talked with Wolf about Wrigley Field's rich history. Joining me now is Gregory Wolf, editor of Wrigley Field, The Friendly Confines at Clark and Addison. Gregory, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for the invitation, uh, Nathan. I really appreciate it. And I am going to disclose up front my many, many conflicts of interest that make me a particularly biased and cheerleading interviewer. Um, I contributed four of the articles to this volume. Uh, You have commissioned and edited my work for this and other publications of the Society for American Baseball Research, of which I am a fellow member. Uh, You couldn't find someone who um, is more enthusiastic about this book and uh, anyone who wants a antagonistic interrogation will have to look elsewhere. Is that fair enough to establish? Thank you. That's fair enough. So you were born in Pittsburgh, and that ordinarily would come with a different set of loyalties to a a different franchise and a different baseball tradition. How did you become a Chicagoan and a Cubs fan? Well, I I was born in Pittsburgh, and I also lived in St. Louis for almost a decade. I've lived in Chicago since uh, 2005. Uh, my wife was from Chicago, and I, when, when I married her, I moved from St. Louis to Chicago. And uh, we all, we uh, live, as I said, we live on the north side of Chicago. My wife was a, a born in Chicago and a lifelong Cubs fan. And we also go to a lot of Milwaukee, Bra- uh, Milwaukee Brewers games, given the close proximity, especially in April and uh, in September when the weather's bad. So uh, I simply have moved around in, in a specific NL division my lifetime. That's true. Is it difficult to negotiate, though, those different loyalties, given their those teams' rivalries with each other? Um, no, it's not. In fact, as you know, I have uh, written books about all of those teams. The 79 Pirates, we put a book out in Sabre that I edited a few years ago, just recently, the Sportsman's Park book, and uh, two books on the uh, Milwaukee uh, Braves and Brewers uh, at County Stadium, and also the 1957 Milwaukee Braves. So, you know, my loyalties, uh, I, I like all four teams, but living here in Chicago, I wind up following the Cubs the closest of all four teams. So you mentioned your previous books and Sabre issues so many throughout the year, and there have been so many books in general about Wrigley Field. Why another one? Why this one? Well, for a lot of reasons. Um, Sabre has been uh, publishing about one book a year for, let's say, maybe the last four or five years. And our Sabre books, um, one, I think, are, are, are special because of the quality of the writing, the historical focus of the writing, the research, and the contextualization. Um, unlike a lot of other books on Wrigley, and you're right, there are countless books on Wrigley, um, 
a lot of the, the books that I see do not have any annotation. There's no bibliographic references. Uh, there's no, uh, there, sometimes books are, are, have very limited research. This book uh, was an attempt to tell the story of Wrigley Field through the story. When I say the story, I mean the history um, of Wrigley Field through 100 games played there, as well as 10 feature essays about it. So it's really an attempt to take a long diachronic view of Wrigley Field uh, through uh, these games that are modeled after a project that we have in Sabre called the Games Project. Uh, using that format to create this book, we've included, as I said, 100 games that I've chosen. How did you choose the games? How hard was it? Were there were games 101 and 102 difficult to cut? Well, they it was difficult. I think in the, I start out by making a gigantic spreadsheet of all the games that I would like to use. And um, I probably at one point had 400 games. Wow. However, there are a few things uh, that I look at when choosing the games. It's not just, uh, we're talking about Wrigley Field. My gosh, it's been around since 1914 with a number of Hall of Fame players. We could have simply, I could have had a book that consists nothing of great games by someone like uh, Pete Alexander, Ron Santo, Billy Williams, Ernie Banks, et cetera, Fergie Jenkins. Um, but that really wasn't our goal. The goal is to tell the history, and the history is more than just the great players and the great games by the Cubs. What I've attempted to do is take a look at games that feature milestones uh, for players, outstanding performances, games that feature players who are perhaps not as well-known, players whose names um, might not even be remembered by even Cubs fans, people like Tuffy Rhodes or Roosevelt Brown or Hank Leiber. Uh, so there's a big range of players that games focus on, as well as the events. Obviously, there's a lot of postseason games included, all of the World Series games from 1929, 32, 35, 38, 45, and of course the 2016 World Series games. And then also, I had to save a few. I had around 95 games. Um, when we when I when I ended the, the the list, and I had to save around five or six games because I didn't know what would happen in 2017. I was kind of hoping that I would have a few extra games for 2017, uh, but as you know, the Cubs bowed out uh, to the Dodgers in the NLCS in 2017. I think that was one of the games that you wrote, as a matter of fact. Yes. Um, so those were the the concluding games. So it it starts out in 1914 with the, the Federal League, uh, Chai Fed, the Chicago Wells, and then it ends in 2017 with the Chicago Cubs uh, NLCS loss. You mentioned a fact that I don't know if all Chicagoans, even Cubs fans, realize or remember, and that is that Wrigley Field was not built to be the home of the Chicago Cubs. Why was it built? Yeah, that's true. Uh, the Wrigley Field was originally called Wigman Park, and that's named after Charles Wigman, who owned... Uh, a baseball team called the Chicago Wells, sometimes called the Chicago Chai Feds. Uh, this was part of the short-lived Federal League from 1914 to 1915, a third major league, if you will. Its demise uh, after the 1915 season was due to a number of reasons, financial lawsuits by both the American League and the National League. Um, but that's a different story and worthy of a, of a complete different podcast. Suffice to say that Charles Wigman, a multimillionaire, in Chicago, commissioned 
uh, commissioned Wrigley Field, what later became Wrigley Field, to be built. It opened to begin the 1914 season. It was inaugurated in uh, April 23rd, 1914. That was the first game for the the Chai Fed, the Chicago Wells. Uh, what a lot of people also don't know, especially here in Chicago, is that the architect for uh, Wrigley Field is uh, Zachary Taylor Davis, and he was also the architect for Comiskey Park, which opened in 1911. So when you think of Chicago as a two, uh, now a uh, two baseball team city, uh, and whose fans have obviously passionate concerns about both teams, those two teams, the White Sox uh, and the Cubs, at least for a long time, were unified by the architect of the two, of the two stadiums. Of course, Comiskey, the original Comiskey, has, has been gone since 1990. But for a long time, those two teams were connected by that. One of the things that defines Wrigley Field is its urban neighborhood context. And that used to be relatively common in baseball. At the time Wrigley was built, its setting was not unusual. It's become less common today, and, and we can talk about why. But I remember when I lived in Chicago, I would go to the side of the field, even when there wasn't a game, just to walk around the stadium and experience that urban context. Um, and for you and for other Chicagoans, that place is so familiar um, and so appealing. Can you explain to someone who has not been to the park uh, the that atmosphere, that setting in which this park sits? Um, well, uh, I say imagine uh, a Major League Baseball park in the middle of your neighborhood, surrounded by uh, houses, by apartment complexes, by literally thousands of restaurants, bars, and uh, stores and shops with no or limited parking. That's what the Wrigley Field experience is like. Um, We used to live just a few blocks west of the park. Now we live on the north side. So we used to walk to the games, my wife and I, and there, there is a, a, a very vibrant atmosphere, not just on the 81 home games of Wrigley Field, but also during uh, uh, during the off season and during uh, times when the Cubs are away. The restaurants and bars and, and the neighborhood life there goes on even without the Cubs. And quite honestly, if Wrigley Field weren't there, and, and of course with the $1 billion that the Ricketts family has invested over the last few years, that will never happen now. But even if it weren't there, there's a lively neighborhood. It's one of Chicago's 80 or so registered neighborhoods. So it is. there is a lot going on. Of course, on uh, day games, the neighborhood wakes up quite early. A lot of the restaurants and bars uh, are already open by, by 10 o'clock. Um, all guaranteed by 11 o'clock. I just went to a game a few weeks ago with my friends, and and we met up at a restaurant at 11 o'clock and walking down Clark, that's a diagonal street in Chicago. Chicago is laid out on a east-west, north-south axis, and Clark is a diagonal street. Uh, Going down Clark, my gosh, all the restaurants and bars were already open, and it's it's 10 to 11. And so it is a a very vibrant atmosphere. Nowadays, because you might have literally not just the 40,000 some odd people at the at Wrigley Field, but you might have another four, five, six, seven thousand milling about at the restaurants and and bars, uh, playoff games, of course, even more. Now they're blocking off and closing down some of the streets like Clark and Addison. That's the main intersection where the marquee is, the main entrance, but also uh, some uh, Waveland and Shefland 
are closed off just because the for safety purposes, of course, with so many people walking around. Again, this kind of urban setting was typical when Wrigley Field was built. And sometimes I tell myself when I'm sitting at Wrigley Field, this is what it felt like to sit at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, at Sportsman's Park in, in St. Louis, at uh, the old Comiskey. Um, and yet Indeed. and yet, all of those other parks uh, have bit the dust. Uh, you mentioned Comiskey and every other park except for Fenway Park in Boston uh, of that era has been demolished. Um, why did Wrigley survive? It is a special park, but was it just lucky to um, survive while all those other ones met their fate? Or is there something about Wrigley that has allowed it and uh, forced it to endure? Well, um, I would. my first answer is it's a combination of luck uh, and, and, some, and some good and bad decisions, actually. And don't forget Fenway. Fenway is actually the oldest park in 1912, and it has a, a, a robust, vibrant atmosphere around the park, just like uh, just like Ridley. Well, I, I would say a number of things. Um, keep in mind that uh, the team was owned for a very long time by uh, the Wrigley family, and the Wrigley family did not put a lot of money into the park. Uh, it was uh, it was not their main business, unlike today. A, a lot of uh, families who run uh, sports teams, their their baseball interests or their sports interests are not their primary interests, right? They're, these are billionaire families. Baseball is simply one thing that they do. And the Wrigley family did not put a whole lot of money into, into uh, the park. Um, I don't know when you lived in, in the Wrigley, uh, Wrigleyville area, the Wrigleyville neighborhood, but as you know, in the 19... Um, in the late 1960s and 1970s, and even in the 1980s, that neighborhood was becoming um, a little bit seedy, quite honestly. Uh, it's not uh, 20 years ago or even 15 years ago. It was nowhere near that it is now, even though 15 and 20 years ago there were still bars and restaurants, but nothing like it is now. It's, 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 it's incomparable. Um, in in the early 1980s, there were already discussions that Wrigley Field might be moved um, for a lot of reasons. It would be closed. There were ideas that the park, um, that lights needed to be installed at Wrigley Field. Of course, it was the last field to have lights uh, that were installed. Uh, there were a lot of ideas that maybe on the north side of Cook County, um, around the Schaumburg area, now that is... Uh, about 20 miles due north of uh, Chicago in a very big uh, uh, urban shopping district. And there was a lot of, uh, a lot of ideas that uh, Wrigley Field might be closed. And uh, eventually lights were installed in 1988. And I think that though with lights being installed in 1988, that gave it a second, uh, I think, a second life, quite honestly. And so that might be another reason uh, that it stayed. Um, but even so, in, in the, the attendance at Wrigley Field in the 1960s and 1970s is not what is now. They were uh, um, among the worst uh, attended teams in all of baseball, believe it or not. It's not a team that was attracting a full house. We're talking about attendance, uh, average attendances at games for 10,000, 11,000 uh, during the 1970s. So attendance was, was not good. But I think some of the success that they had in 1984 with the team and eventually um, with the lights being installed in 1988, that gave it a second life. And then 
in the, the late 1990s is really when uh, Wrigley, the Wrigleyville area began a massive rejuvenation and gentrification process, the massive building that was occurring all throughout the north side of Chicago, and that secured Wrigley. So I think a number of things together happening um, around the same time secured it. But there was, um, at a time in 1986, 1987, 1988, there was a real concern that Wrigley would, in fact, uh, be moved or, you know, simply closed down and a new park built. And just what a loss that would have been and what a treasure that we have that uh, that it has remained. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the many, just a few of the many memorable Cubs games that have happened at Wrigley Field. But first, uh, this the introductory material and some of the games as well include some uh, Negro League games and some games in uh, of women's professional baseball during World War II. Um, how important was it to include some of those uh, as part of Wrigley's history? Well, let me... Uh... Let me begin by just saying that a book like this is a, is a project that consists, uh, that exists only because the collaboration of many people. Um, I happen to be the editor uh, of this book, but I had a team, uh, an incredible editorial team consisting of Bill Nolan uh, out of Boston, uh, who was the second reader, a fact checker, Carl Reichers, who lives in St. Louis, and Len Levin, the final copy editor in uh, Rhode Island, uh, they read every word of, of the text. I'm reading all of them. The authors are contributing or, or corresponding with me. But this is truly a, a collaborative effort. And as I mentioned, we have approximately 40 Sabre members who work with this. And without their work, a book like this doesn't occur. Um, I, I just want to stress that. You mentioned you wrote four outstanding uh, essays. and. Um, Writers like Mike Hubert, Alan Cohen, Mike Lynch, Doug Feldman, Scott Furkovich, Russ Lake, John Bauer, uh, Rick Bush. Uh, these are authors. I've worked with them on a number of books. I think this was the 10th book that I've edited for Sabre. And um, um, we have some of the best uh, academic scholars, baseball historians who write, and they are, are truly dedicated uh, to preserving baseball history. Uh, they've interviewed players, they've scoured secondary sources, newspapers, archival material to write these stories and these essays. And let me mention one more thing. I, I should have mentioned that earlier, Nathan. Um, these game stories modeled after the Sabre Games Project, these are not just simply some kind of ESPN story or newspaper story that recounts what happened. It's not a play-by-play -play story. That's that's boring, quite, on, uh, quite honestly, Nathan. These stories attempt to contextualize the historical importance of each game. Uh, in fact, we shun and really eschew a play-by-play -play, uh, retelling of the story uh, of the game, but rather we want, we want the story to really bring uh, the game, its importance to life. Why is this game important? Every game in baseball, as you know, is so complex and so different, but um, these authors really have, have brought life to the game beyond just simply who scored what and how many statistics. This is not some kind of statistical analysis of these games, nor, and let me I stress because sometimes in this day and age, the word saber and saber metrics might evoke some negative passions. This is not a saber metric analysis of these games. Saber, uh, as a matter of fact, is a very broad organization and it has homes for for many different kinds of scholarship. 
and the kind of scholarship that I work with is is historical scholarship. I just wanted to mention that, Nathan, so your listeners understand a little bit what Sabre does. It's not all about complicated uh, advanced metrics and, and statistical analyses. Right. Yeah, glad maybe, you did. Yeah. Maybe something about the Negro Leagues. As you know, Chicago has always been one of the most important cities in the United States for Negro League baseball. Um, Negro League baseball, however, uh, on the north side of Chicago has a very limited history. As a little plug, we have a book coming out that I've edited on Comiskey Park that should be out perhaps by the end of uh, this calendar year or the beginning of next calendar year. And that book goes into Negro League baseball much, much in much more detail. Negro League baseball in Chicago was concentrated on the south side, specifically um, in a park called the South Side Park, where the Chicago White Sox played up until 1911. When they left, when Comiskey moved his club into Comiskey Park, at that time known as White Sox Park, the uh, Chicago Giants, uh, a Negro League team, played there in Southside Park from 1911 to 1940. And they also played in Comiskey Park beginning in 1911. Um, and games were played there for a long time through the 1960s, as a matter of fact, at Comiskey Park when the White Sox were not there. So Wrigley Field has a very limited uh, story of, of Negro League Baseball. But because the importance, when you say Chicago, that might even conjure up Negro League Baseball for a lot of uh, fans and, and baseball historians and enthusiasts and scholars, I wanted to make sure that we included an essay about Negro League Baseball. And Alan Cohen uh, wrote one for us. And um, as a matter of fact, African-Americans were, they were prohibited from playing uh, baseball in Wrigley Field well into uh, the 20th century. Uh, that's why they were playing on the south side. Plus, that's where the the, the Giants, uh, the uh, the uh, Chicago uh, Negro League teams were playing. Anyone the south side, 39th Street, the south side. But there's some evidence that that began to change during the war years, when, of course, the owner of the team then, Philip K. Ridley, was also looking for additional revenue. And one of the first uh, Negro League games that were played uh, in Wrigley Field was, in fact, not a Negro League game, but rather an All-Star game that consisted of the Dizzy Dean All-Star Troop and another All-Star team, a black team that was led by Satchel Page, and that game took place in 1942 at Wrigley Field. So that's one of the first games that was there. And about two months later, Satchel, play, Satchel Page was honored in Wrigley Field, already one of the biggest names in baseball. And uh, his team, the, the KC Kansas City Monarchs, played a doubleheader uh, in uh in Wrigley Field. But by the end of the war in 1945, a Negro League baseball, this three-year period where there were just a handful of games, most of the games were still played on the south side, just a handful of games were played at Wrigley Field, but that came to a quick halt because um, P.K. Wrigley began to demand uh, $5,000 or more just to use the stadium, um, the ballpark, and that, that sum was much too prohibitive for um, Negro League baseball. So it came to a very quick end. And tell us briefly, too, about women's professional baseball during the war. It's a remarkable period in a lot of ways. What opportunities were available, and how did the war enable them uh, for female players? In many ways, um, it's related to the Negro Leagues insofar as P.K. Wrigley was interested in finding additional resources for Wrigley Field and for him and his company. And there was a real concern uh, once America... uh, entered the war at the end of 1941, that in fact, 
uh, baseball, a baseball season would be canceled. There was already fear that the 1943 season would be canceled, if not uh, shortened. FDR had the famous green light letter that baseball should go on. Baseball uh, helped the morale of the troops abroad as well as the Americans at home. And in 1943, uh, P.K. Wrigley, Philip K. Wrigley, founded uh, what we call the American, um, the uh, the AAG. PBL, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League in 1943, and we've included two games from this. And this uh, AAG PBL is very important, um, I think, not just for women's baseball, but also for baseball in general. Keep in mind, we um, the league was initially called, instead of the B, there was an S there, Softball League. And P.K. Wrigley changed the name in mid-season 1943, which was the first season of the league. He changed that to baseball because the rules for all practical purposes were the same as baseball, except they used a 12-inch softball and the pitchers threw underhanded. So keep in mind that those were two very important distinctions. So baseball, yes, but it wasn't the hardball and the women threw underhanded. So uh, a lot of people don't know that when they when they hear the baseball league, they think the women are throwing using uh, the hardball and throwing overhand. That wasn't necessarily the case. Um, and so it was an opportunity for women to um, take ownership in sports um, and also show their skills. I think this was a very uh, important move in uh, women's rights, women's equality. That league came to a quick close, of course. Some people might remember the 1992 movie, um, The League of Their Own. I don't know um, what you think about that film, but um, in some ways I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a comedy. But, um, I don't think it necessarily does justice to the importance of the league. We've included um, a game from 1943, which was an all-star game, and most of the teams that were included in this uh, AAG PBL were located in Wisconsin, Illinois, and Indiana. In other words, close to Wrigley Field in this Midwestern area in the Chicago, uh, not far from Chicago. And this first game in J uh, July 1st, 1943, was in fact the first game ever played in Wrigley Field under lights. And as you know, the first night game wasn't until 1988, but this game took place 45 years earlier. And this was an all-star game uh, between the uh, Wisconsin All-Stars and the All-Stars from the Illinois, Indiana uh, area. And so I think that was uh, for us uh, maybe an interesting point. Uh, there were temporary Klieg lights set up behind home plate, as well as first and third base, played at night. Um, and um, the, the authors of this, uh, Mary Fiedler and Jim Nitz, have done extensive research on the AAG PBL. Uh, uh, some of the women, uh, amazing quotes from the women who talked about um, the, the poor lighting in the outfield, the difficulty of seeing the ball, the shadows. But the chance of playing in Wrigley Field in front of a large audience, I think it was um, it was simply stunning and, and awe-inspiring for, for these women. We also included another game from 1944, uh, July, uh, in July 44, which happened to be the second game, for, uh, the second ever uh, night game at Wrigley Field. And uh, we included that one, not necessarily because it was the second game played under the lights, also, of course, uh, temporary lights, but it uh, was a game between two teams, the Milwaukee Chicks and the South Bend uh, Blue Sox. And it was a Red Cross game. And this was an attempt, it was a, a, a fundraiser, if you will, for the Red Cross people who um, 
uh, if you wore Red Cross buttons or if you showed that you were a blood donor, you got in free. And it was an attempt to raise awareness for Red Cross and uh, the needs of the country and soldiers during World War II. So those two games, I think, for us kind of showed two different aspects of the Professional Baseball League, uh, as well as the context of the period. As well as, it's a good stumper for a trivia question, when was the first night game at Wrigley Field? I guarantee you nobody will know that if you go to a bar and ask for that as a, your trivia question tonight. You mentioned a league of their own. wanted to mention that Wrigley Field does appear in that movie in the tryout scene, which was filmed there, uh, since that was, I believe, the historical location of tryouts for that league. Yes, yes, indeed. So in addition to editing this volume, you contributed numerous game stories, uh, some games as short as a 58-minute shutout in 1919, and some long games, some marathons. Uh, what draws you to these long games? And tell us about one in particular in July of 1918. Well, um, I did write 13 games, uh, about 13 games for, for this book. And I, I think that my biggest interest in, in the games uh, have been historically some pitching games. And I'm tended to, I tend to be drawn to either these really strange marathon pitching performances, in part because nowadays when you see pitchers uh, stop at 100 pitches and they've only pitched four and, a, four and a two-thirds or five and two-thirds uh, innings, you wonder how could somebody pitch more than nine innings, let alone 15, 16, or even more. I also like no-hitters and, and some other weird games by pitchers, big strikeout totals, etc. Uh, a game that I'm really interested in, occurred in 1918 that's the year baseball ended about one month early and uh it was a 21 inning game and it was the chicago cubs lefty tyler and the philadelphia phillies milt watson uh, uh, the mule known as the mule and this game in uh july ended an 18 games an 18 day stretch by lefty tyler and he pitched 62 and two-thirds innings in 18 days. Now that's what an ace today pitches in two months. And this last day, this 18th day, he pitched a 21 inning complete game. He faced 77 batters. He came out victorious 2-1. Milt Watson also went the distance. He went 20 innings. He lost in the 20th, of course, the bottom of the 20th. He didn't record any outs in the 21st inning. Um, he faced 82 batters. I mean, these are just stunning. Um, when I read these stories uh, or about these games, I often wondered how many pitches do you think they might have thrown? Now, of course, counts didn't go so long back then like they do today, uh, and they didn't fall off the pitches like they do today. But um, 20 innings, 21 innings, 200 pitches, that would be simple to throw that many. Anyway, I find this game to be, for me, fascinating because both pitchers went uh, the distance, both pitchers pitched over 20 innings. It was only the third game at the time in Major League history where both pitchers went over 20 innings. And this game for me is, is interesting for a number of reasons. Back then you had the starting game, starting times at 3 o'clock. Of course, there were no lights at Wrigley. The game starts at 3. About three hours into the game, right before the 16th inning, the game's tied 1-1. One to one. The umpires simply go to the, the managers and say, this game's going to stop at 7 o'clock no matter what. It will be a tie game. And as you know from your research, um, 
before lights in Major League Baseball, ties were common in baseball. Teams might have two or three or four ties per year because of lights or bad weather, et cetera. The games might not even be made up. Anyway, um, the game, the, the umpires said the game's ending at 7 o'clock no matter what. Um, the Philadelphia Phillies, they need to be at the train station by 8 o'clock to uh, catch a game, uh, to catch a train back to uh, to Pittsburgh where they were playing the next day. And Lefty Tyler, he pitches the top of the 21st, gets through, uh, gets through uh, the uh, the inning. It's still 1-1. In the bottom of the 21st, in, in many ways, this is just an example of dead ball era tactics. And maybe today when you think of all the, the long balls, uh, in, in professional baseball, the home run, the lack of contact, uh, the walks, and the home runs, uh, for some reason, I, I, I see myself the last few years becoming more and more enamored by the dead ball. In this last inning, amazingly, the pitcher is still there, uh, Mule Watson, and the first, the, the leadoff batter, he bunts. Uh, it's just a lot of luck that happens, or else the game would have uh, the game would have ended this inning inning anyway. This would have been the last. It's right before seven o'clock, but a lot of things happen. Uh, the first batter has a swinging bunt back to the pitcher. It would have been an easy out, but Watson slips. He's not able to get the ball. It's a single. The next batter, Bill Killifer, uh, he has an attempt. To, he wants to attempt to attempt a sacrifice bunt. His trousers are, are nipped by the ball, hit by pitch, runners on first and second. The next batter, he's trying dead ball there tactic, tactics. He's trying to, to bunt down the third base side. What happens? Um, he misjudges his bunt, and he actually bunts safe, and he reaches base. Uh, he bunts too hard. The bunt goes beyond the charging third baseman, and then the, the fourth hitter, the bases are loaded. There's no out, and um, the next hitter, uh, Max Flack, collects his fifth hit of the game, and he wins it. And, Nathan, the game lasts four hours, 21 innings, four hours. Uh, for me, all of these things are, are so much fun to write about um, and all the intricacies that go on in the game. For me, that's what baseball is about, really trying to uncover a lot. And keep in mind that um, for a lot of games, in baseball history, they do not have, especially before the 1940s, um, baseballreference.com uh, and retrosheet.org, uh, they do not have game by play-by-play uh, -play analysis. So you have to piece together what happened from a number of, of uh, reports, from uh, reports from Philadelphia newspapers or from Chicago newspapers in this instance. You mentioned you enjoy writing about pitching feats, and you've written about a number of no-hitters that occurred at Wrigley Field, uh, including Don Cardwell, who achieved the feat. He was acquired by trade in May of 1960, and how long did it take him after putting on a Cubs jersey to achieve that? Well, um, no-hitters, you're right. I, I do like writing about them, and I, I think I wrote about, I don't know, maybe five or, yeah, maybe five or six no-hitters at Wrigley Field. And Cardwell, um, kind of a nothing special baseball player at the time. He was uh, had a losing record. He was he had been acquired in midseason in 1916 with a 17 and 26 record. Um, less than two days after being acquired, he throws a no hitter for the Cubs. His catcher Dale Rice had never caught him before. Uh, obviously, um, he did not know the pitcher at all. Had really never seen the pitcher other than during a few games 
against the Philadelphia uh, Phillies. And um, I think today, imagine a pitcher coming in uh, and throwing a no-hitter uh, your first time uh, to a catcher, uh, granted an experienced catcher, who's not very aware of the kinds of pitches that you throw. And he tells the pitcher, well, you know what? I prefer today if you don't throw any breaking balls. I just don't know how your breaking balls go, so let's just go with fast stuff and slow stuff, and let's see what we can do. And he throws a no-hitter. Um, the game ends, like a lot of times, um, by maybe some luck and a great catch. Walter Marin catches a, um, a little blooping Texas leaguer um, in shallow left field, wins, and that secures the no-hitter last out of the game. That's what I enjoy about baseball so much is when the game starts, you have no idea what you might be about to see. Uh, however improbable it could happen, and a lot of improbable things have happened at Wrigley Field. Another no-hitter you write about was Milt Pappas on September 2, 1972. He completes the no-hitter, but for years is deeply bitter about the way the game ended. Why was that? Well, um, could I just back up one second? Sure. Um, uh, Nathan, um, Milt Pappas throws uh, the Cubs' third no-hitter in 1972 uh, in about just a, a very short um, three-year span. Kenny Holtzman throws a no-hitter in, in, at the end of 1969 in, in, in uh, August of, of 69, and he becomes just the third pitcher to uh, toss a no-hitter with no strikeouts. If you think about today, there are more strikeouts than hits. Here's someone who tosses a no-hitter with no strikeouts. I dare say that that will never happen again in baseball history. I can't imagine it happening again. Um, of course, one should never say never in baseball, but that's one I just cannot imagine. And then this 1972 season was delayed by about two weeks, 13 days, because of the first ever baseball strike by the Major League um, Baseball Players Association, the Players Union, um, it was delayed. And... Uh, in the first start of the season for Burt Hooten, who was a rookie, he tosses a no-hitter. So the 1972 season starts out uh, with this no-hitter by Burt Happy Hooten, who was one of the uh, players who popularized the knuckle curve. Milt Pappas is an interesting individual. Um, Milt Pappas kind of revived his career in uh, with the Cubs. He was acquired in mid-1970. Um, and he debuted as an 18-year-old with the Baltimore Orioles in 1957. And he um, had been struggling a little bit with the Braves, looked like he might be washed up. And he revives his career in 1971. He wins 17 games, which was, in fact, his career high at the point, at that point in his career. 72 comes around, and he is feeling terrible. Um, He's pitching poorly. His arm already, uh, he, he thinks his arm is shot during spring. His elbow was shot during the course of the 1972 season. He claims that he took over 30 cortisone shots before September. You can't imagine, I mean, that can't be good for your arm, all right? And all of a sudden, beginning August, he has probably the best stretch of his pitching career. So the last two months of the season, he pitches 11 times, wins 11 straight this, uh, games, wins 11 straight decisions with a one point, you know, with a 1.860 area. I, I took a note about that. I wanted to mention that. And during this best stretch of his baseball career, he pitches a no hitter. And what's interesting about this is um, 
He's, he's sick this day. He doesn't want to come to the park, and he doesn't think that he'll pitch. Um, and then uh, he tosses his no-hitter, which today is, is somewhat iconic in Chicago and, and I think has made uh, Mill Pappas. It's unfortunately uh, maybe the defining moment in his career, not so much the no-hitter, but because of his reaction to the no-hitter. And I think it's very unfortunate because Mill Pappas was, I think, one of these pitchers who's um, especially underrated. He, he won over 200 games in his career. He was the first pitcher to win 200 without winning 20 in a season, and he tossed 43 shutouts. So a very underrated player. Anyway, um, he is one out from a no-hitter. Two outs in the ninth. Larry Stahl um, comes to bat That's against the San Diego Padres, as I said, in September, early September 1972. Against Larry Stahl, this is a 230 hitter. It's the Padres. You know, the Padres probably led the, uh, had the worst batting average in the, in the National League for the first three or four years of their existence, if not longer. And they have this, maybe that's a historical curse of the Padres. Um, Pappas goes up in the count 1-2. Then he throws two balls. The count is 3-2. And his next pitch, amazingly, is called a ball. Behind the plate is Bruce Froming, and if uh, I think for, for baseball enthusiasts or maybe baseball historians, Bruce Froming is an umpire whose name is recognizable. He had a 37-year career in baseball, retired just around 10 years ago or so, 10, 12 years ago. He was just in his second year, and he called a ball. Now, I have seen um, on YouTube or somewhere else um, – Jack Brickhouse, who was the announcer for the Chicago Cubs, a WGN announcer at the time, I've seen his his uh, his comments. Uh, Milt Pappas goes into an angry rage on the mound. He's yelling at Bruce uh, Froming. He's stomping around on the mound. He might have thrown his glove down. I can't recall if I mentioned that in the article or not. But he is yelling and screaming with the 230 hitter one strike away from a perfect game. That's the key to the whole story. One strike away from the perfect game. It would have been the eighth perfect game. The last one had been thrown by Catfish Hunter in 1968. Um, and uh, the next batter comes up, and he he uh, sets him down, uh, and it's a no-hitter. Uh, this game, the, the afterward, um, in the dugout, instead of everyone jumping up and down, uh, jubilant and ebullient about a no-hitter, there's almost of the feeling in the dugout that, oh, my gosh, we just lost the World Series. So the players are dejected. Um, Pappas is dejected. Ron Santo, uh, think of him as the emotional leader of the team. He says this is, you know, just a letdown. You know, it's a disappointment. After the game, of course, in the dugout, Milt Pappas admitted that he, uh, you know, was lucky with some pitches, threw some hanging sliders that, that the batters had missed. Um, um, but afterward, and for the remainder of Pappas's life, he, he was bitter. This, this no-hitter began to, I think, consume him in many ways. And um, if you take a look at interviews from Pappas, uh, Mil Pappas actually retired just after the 1973 season, so uh, about a year later he was out of baseball. Um, he, in the, throughout the 70s, 80s, and, and 90s, and, and um, well into the 2000s, 
he talked about how he felt that he was cheated, uh, that Fromming did him an injustice, that given the historical gravity of the situation, just one pitch away from um, a perfect game, that he should have gotten the call, no matter what the call was, unless it was a ball that was so recognizable to anybody in um, the stands, then it could be called a ball. And so he was really, really angry, and I think uh, bitter in baseball. And sometimes uh, I, 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 practically every interview that I would hear from, hear from him afterward made some reference to um, Froming and the, and the anger. And I'm, I'm not sure about this, but I don't think those two ever reconciled. There, as you mentioned, this book has reports on all of the World Series games at Wrigley Field, including in the 1945 World Series, the eviction of a billy goat from Wrigley Field, which may or may not have cursed the Cubs as they didn't return to postseason action for four decades. Um, And in 2003, uh, the game in which a fan reached out or the ball went into the stands and a fan reached to interfere with it, uh, I still think it's unjust that Alex Gonzalez's botched double play, which you can read about in that story, uh, was not the infamous moment of that game. Um, do you allow yourself, as a Cubs fan and as a researcher, to uh, to think about and, and try to answer this age-old question, was something supernatural at work in these fateful moments that seemed to intervene and curse the Cubs uh, from, uh, from, from winning a championship until just so recently? Well... On one hand, um, I, I like the, uh, there's something that's attractive. The narrative of the lovable loser is one that uh, I think people can uh, appreciate. They can associate with it. They can identify with the idea of the lovable loser. But I think in many ways, the lovable loser is in fact historical revisionism. Um, in many ways, the Cubs were never uh, the lovable loser. Uh, the Cubs were, in fact, uh, for a very long time, considered one of the marquee uh, strong teams in all of baseball. And um, granted, there were periods of, of lesser success, but as I mentioned, the Cubs went to a World Series in 29, 32, 35, 38, and again in 1945. Granted, they lost all five of those World Series, but um, the teams they played against were simply better. They lost in 1929 to the Philadelphia A's, which might be one of the best teams, if not the best team in baseball history. Um, Then they lose in 32 uh, to the New York Yankees. My gosh, this was uh, the Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig-led Yankees. Um, These were were teams that... um, that I think that was simply better. In 1945, they lose to um, the Detroit Tigers. Granted, these were were, uh, teams that were um, depleted by World War II, but my gosh, you had hell, the Prince Neuhauser, the best pitcher in baseball, Um, and uh, Hank Grinberg had come back. Uh, So I think that those losses, they were simply, they were not as good as the other teams. and in, in 1918, the Cubs went to the World Series. I meant to mention it earlier, but the Cubs, uh, Wigman Park at the time had um, lower seating capacity, had, had about 20,000 seating capacity, and the Cubs played in, in Comiskey Park, 
you can imagine today that if you had a team that would say, oh, I don't want to play in my home home uh, park. I want to go play in somebody else's park because they're, the seating capacity is more. These are the kinds of stories that I find so fascinating. But I think the Cubs were this golden age of, of Cubs baseball well, it was one that they were among the best. The Cardinals, the Cubs, and the Giants during that era were, were so good. It's this period, really, in the 19, um, especially in the 1950s and 1960s, that the Cubs have this two-decade-long period of, of simple ineptitude for a number of reasons. Uh, one is is uh, perhaps not enough money being invested into the team, uh, also money invested into the park. But you have these great players for the Cubs, of course, uh, in the 1960s, Banks and, and Santo uh, and, and uh, Williams and, and Fergie Jenkins later. And the Cubs had a period of success from the 1960s, mid-1960s until uh, the early 1970s. And then, then again, off and on. So uh, this, this idea that they were always losers um, and never had good seasons, I think that's part of the mythology of the, of the Chicago Cubs before they won the World Series in, in 2016 in the second year of the Joe Madden era. Um, I don't necessarily think that was the case. I mean, granted, in 1984, they go up two, uh, two games to zero on the San Diego Padres and lose three consecutive games. But... Um, you know, you play poorly, you have some bad luck here or there, and you had made reference to the Bartman game where the fan catches a, a ball, Mark Pryor is rolling, and they wind up losing. Well, you know, if you if we talk that way about uh, the Chicago Cubs, in many ways you could have said the same thing about the history of the, of, of the Boston Red Sox, the history of the Chicago White Sox in some, in, in some instances, for a long time, we could talk that way about the Los Angeles Lakers throughout the 1960s and early 1970s when they played seemingly played the Boston Celtics every year in the NBA basketball, NBA basketball, or or um, the Minnesota Vikings of the 70s and the Denver Broncos of the 1980s. So I think this idea of the lovable loser that somehow fate is against them—it's an attractive narrative, but I think it sometimes obscures that that that's not necessarily always the reality. Well, it was the reality in 2016 until that year, uh, the Cubs so famously finally climbed to the mountaintop, won the World Series. They actually clinched it in Cleveland. And so in many ways, the most triumphant moment that occurred at Wrigley Field that year was when they won the pennant. They won the National League for the right to go to the World Series for the first time since 1945 with the chance to win it for the first time since 1908. Uh, You wrote about that game. Tell us about writing about such a moment of catharsis uh, at Wrigley Field. uh, Yeah, well... I have to say that as a big baseball fan, I really enjoy listening to games uh, on the radio. And I can simply remember vividly Pat Hughes uh, at the end of the game saying, Pat Hughes is the announcer, the lead announcer for the Chicago Cubs, saying the Cubs are going to the World Series. Um, I can hear his very uh, unique voice saying that, of course, his comments about winning the World Series about two weeks later are equally um, ringing in my ears. But those words uh, were, I think, for Chicago fans, unbelievable. The first time they, uh, the, the club goes to the World Series um, since 1945. Of course, they hadn't won since since 1908. Uh, so you're talking about 100, 108 years. Um, 
the Joe Madden era uh, coming in, the second year of the Joe Madden era, 103 wins during the regular season. Um, this game, uh, I remember, I remember it so well. Um, a matchup of, of Hendricks and Kershaw. They also pitched. Uh, it was a, a, a rematch, actually, of, of the game two. Uh, game two of the uh, NLCS, and Kershaw, despite his well-documented postseason woes, the three-time Cy Young Award winner, um, pitched a brilliant game uh, in game two. He only gave up two hits in um, in seven innings or so, and he won 1-0. Hendricks pitched also really well, but only went a little over five innings. And this is the matchup. And this year, 2016, Hendricks is coming really – uh, he's emerging as one of the best players in baseball. We call him now the professor. I think he has a recognizable name in baseball. But I think in 2016, he didn't. But he did lead all of the majors in ERA that year, 216. I think that's another good factoid to stump people. Um, and Kershaw was 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 injury prone in, 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 in 2016. He only made 20 starts or so, 21 starts, though his ERA was about 1.6 or 1.7. Easy to the best in baseball, but he was a he was a bit banged up that year, and this game was such a pivotal game that was the atmosphere in Chicago after the first two games they were gone. Then for the next three, they're coming back for game six and seven. The atmosphere at Wrigley was simply phenomenal. Not just the forty-two some odd thousand people at the game. I bet in Chicago, based upon um, images that I saw on TV. It had to have, uh, Wrigleyville had to have 30,000 people there, maybe 40,000 people there. I mean, it was a madhouse. Streets were blocked off. Everything was packed. Um, anyway, um, there's electricity in the air. There's, it's a, it's a, a beautiful night for baseball. Um, it's really a psychologically stressed uh, time for the players. But that game, Hendricks tossed a masterpiece. He, the first batter he faces, top of the first inning, he gives up a single, then does not give up another hit or base runner uh, until um, one out in the seventh. He goes seventh uh, and a third and has a two-hitter. He wins the game, um, but the game really, for all practical purposes, is over in the first inning. Kershaw looks taxed in the first inning. He winds up pitching 30 pitches in the first inning and you're wondering how long will go Fowler the leadoff hitter Dexter Fowler such a a catalyst for that team in 2016 I don't think the Cubs really have been able to find a leadoff hitter since Fowler uh, as you know he leads off with a double Bryant bats in the two hole knocks him in with a single two batters later Ben Zobrist uh, knocks in uh, Bryant, it's 2-0 after the first inning, and I can remember these images of, of Kershaw on the mound, his, his face completely flushed and red, sweat pouring off him, and you could see it looked defeated. The Dodgers looked defeated just after, after one inning. They tacked on another run, I believe, in the second or the third, and by the fifth inning, they had scored all five of the runs, and the Cubs won. I believe that score was 5-0 that game. And um, it was, of course, an amazing uh, vibe in Chicago, but the team had that really workman attitude. They they partied like they did all throughout. Madden let those guys really um, release their energy, but they were ready for the World Series too. I think it's a fun game, fun game to write about and to remember. 
We began by talking about Wrigley Field as a historical relic, a historical treasure, and as an irreplaceable part of its neighborhood. Um, When new ownership took over, as you mentioned, they sunk a lot of money into renovating Wrigley Field. And I believe at this point, after about five years, that renovation is nearly or fully complete. An overhaul of the stadium itself, new development, hotels and apartments across from the park. When that renovation began, there was concern, is this going to ruin the historical look and the historical feel of Wrigley Field? Um, is it is it is it going to work? Is it going to destroy the character of this place? Right. Um, now now that those efforts are about complete, uh, what's your take? Did the renovation work? Did it succeed? Did it spoil Wrigley Field, or did it properly preserve it for uh, a second century of existence? Yeah, it is a good question, and quite honestly, I don't think there is an answer that would be adequate for for everyone. Uh, I think it can be a very partisan answer and one also that still evokes a lot of passions in Chicago about the renovations. Right now, as uh, as the way I understand it, um, all of the renovations to the stadium, to the ballpark, and to the surrounding areas are complete. The Ricketts family uh, invested well over $1 billion. Now, to the ballpark itself, uh, there were substantial um, renovations to the bleachers, uh, to the seating along the first and third base foul lines, uh, as well as to the clubhouses, the home and away clubhouse, all the amenities for the players, etc. And then, of course, this year with the introduction of these kind of sky boxes, if you will. And so massive um, renovation, expansion of the ballpark, uh, bathroom facilities, uh, upgrading all kinds of, um, let's say, customer service facilities, food and beverage and things like that, seating capacity, all of this. Um, those improvements, I think, Nathan, are simply outstanding. Um, I have sat in some of these new seats um, along the first and third base lines near the end uh, of uh, those lines. Those offer very good views of the park. They have easy accessible bathrooms. I don't have any statistics about how many new bathrooms were installed, but it seems to me as if the access to bathrooms is a lot easier. Um, So in that sense, wonderful. Uh, The walkways are, 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 the walkways around the park getting up to to your seats are fine. Uh, Keep in mind, Wrigley Field was literally falling down five and six years ago. I don't know when the last time you were there, but had you been there five years ago, you would have seen netting around Wrigley Field because of concrete falling off of the the ballpark. So I think those are simply wonderful. Now, they have also uh, done all of this work surrounding the park, adjacent to the park on the same side of Clark, and Addison is a are are buildings housing some front office information front office a uh, building with front office offices um, as well as uh, restaurants little bars they've created a park in front of uh, uh in front of Wrigley now that's open year round but during the games it's closed off it becomes kind of a you need to, you need to have a ticket to get into the park during game days only. Um, where there's there's live music, there's a bar, there's a, a very uh, nice party atmosphere across the street on 
uh, the northwest side of of Clark, you have another big uh, a new hotel with restaurants and everything, um, and then the, yet another building with uh, with restaurants and and bars. For me, in one sense, I do like that, but I also am concerned about the over corporate look of Wrigleyville now, especially around the park. Um, I'm not saying that it's good nor bad, but I do always worry about small businesses, these family and small run businesses and bars and shops that had really characterized the Wrigleyville neighborhood. And now with these big uh, buildings uh, owned by the Ricketts family with more corporate-like restaurants and bars, that, of course, is a little bit different than if you're going into a little watering hole owned by who knows whom. Do you know what I mean? Indeed, yes. And so I do worry a little bit about a little bit about that. Um, of course, things are expensive, um, but not in every one of the restaurants in Wrigleyville. But these uh, Chicago, the, the Ricketts family uh, restaurants and bars. I mean, these are these are nice. Uh, the high quality, all top notch, everything, great food, uh, but they can be expensive. And, and um, you know, nowadays I do, I, I'm obviously concerned about the cost of baseball, the cost of tickets, the cost of the experience. But I think Wrigley, the Wrigley Field experience, much like I think in Boston and increasingly in other places like St. Louis with the Cardinals, uh, Cardinal Village with that and the new Braves Park and their their village surrounding uh, the park. Um, going to a baseball game is, in fact, a gigantic experience, the of which the game is but one of many experiences. But you pay for that experience, and it's ex expensive, and it is, I think, um, increasingly an all-day time commitment. Finally, Gregory, you referred to forthcoming uh, publications that are in progress, uh, some of which I've also had the privilege to contribute to. So you're not going to sit back and rest uh, now that this massive Wrigley Field project has uh, has wrapped up. Uh, give us a teaser of what you're working on that we have to look forward to. Well, there are, um, I think I'm working on four books right now, the first of which is on Comiskey Park, and that's finished. Uh, that's with our designer. Our designer is David Ping, and he does a wonderful, wonderful job, as does Cecilia Tan, the director of Sabres Publications. Um, so Comiskey Park will be modeled like the other um, games books that I've done, uh, Crosley Field and, and uh, County Stadium and, and um, what else? Yeah, those two or, or two. Um, then two other books that um, are going to be out, I think, one is scheduled to come out in the summer of 2020, and we Saber anticipates the national convention to take place in the Washington-Baltimore um, area next summer in June or July. And um, the, our book is going to be on Griffith Stadium, uh, where the Chicago, where the Washington Senators played uh, for uh, over a half a century or so. And that book will contain also, like the others, about this one will be a little bit shorter than the Wrigley Field uh, book. It will contain around 70 games as, as well as uh, a lot of information about uh, Negro League baseball and Negro League games, just like the uh, Comiskey Park book did. Um, and then we, I have a book coming out on Shy Park in Philadelphia, which was the first 
steel and concrete stadium that opened up in 1919, the first steel and concrete ballpark. Uh, so important, it really ushered in this new era of um, ballparks in the U.S. That will be another mammoth volume, much like the Cubs. I think we have 100 games. Uh, of course, it was the home for not just the um, Philadelphia Athletics, but also later in the 1930s, beginning in the 30s, the Philadelphia Phillies. And when the A's left in the early 50s, it remained the home of the Phillies to 1970. And then we have another book coming out. Uh, it is on the 1982 Milwaukee Brewers who won the pennant that year and lost to the Cardinals. So those are things that I'm working on right now. There's never an end. And because you're not busy enough, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the Sabre Bio Project. This is a massive undertaking. Unlike a book, it never ends and it will never fit on a shelf. Uh, Tell us about the Sabre Bio Project. Well, thank you for asking about it. Uh, The Sabre Bio Project um, is the brainchild of Mark Armour, one of Sabre directors now. And I've had, since the beginning of 2017, the honor to be the co-director of the bio project with my colleague, uh, Rory Costello, uh, out of Brooklyn. Uh, The bio project is an attempt to write a scholarly biography of every person who ever played Major League Baseball. Included also are other people who are related to baseball. This could include sportscasters, uh, sports writers, uh, and people who are front office people, coaches, etc., that were involved, even some minor leaguers who might have never played. So it is a little bit more than just Major League Baseball players, though that's by far the focus of it. These biographies, again, uh, when we stress the word scholarly biography, they tend to average around 4,000 words. So for an average person, that means around a 12 or 13 page uh, page. Uh, essay. In addition to that, you have your footnotes or your endnotes, excuse me, uh, and your bibliography. All of these essays are read by three uh, editors. That means that we read the essays we, um, and it goes through a process. So it's not all three reading at the same time, but we have a, um, a graduated process of editing. And so we work with the author. They submit something. We offer our comments about what might need to be included, what might not need to be included. Uh, We look at content, we look at Sabre style, we look at the prose, the narrative style, etc. Then after these three readers, um, two or three depending on the situation, we have a fact checker who looks at every single word and uh, number and and fact uh, in the essay that will be fact checked. Of course, the the, the author is getting a chance to revise after each one of these episodes. And finally, a copy editor is taking a look uh, at it, uh, at the essay at the end, and it goes back to the writer, and we take one more look at it. And so, like everything that Sabre does, we place a premium on um, research. Um, I don't want to toot Sabre's horn um, without people understanding, but Sabre's is truly a um, an organization that is based on strong standards of of accuracy and historical uh, historical accuracy. Uh, this is not uh, not just somebody putting together some some words on a sheet of paper. Everything is checked, double checked, triple checked, fact checked, and edited more than what an average person uh, would imagine. So these essays truly go through the ringer before they finally end up on our website. 
uh, saber.org is a wonderful website that contains a lot of a lot of our, our projects, one of which is the bio project. Uh, and we currently have about 47 or 4,800 uh, biographies of baseball players. And so uh, authors, Sabre people, of course, you have to be a member, Sabre member to write. And um, it's, I think, a wonderful project. It's one of our projects that we really try to um, try to advertise as much as possible. And you have a few players left, I believe, who are still looking for a biography. So if you're a Sabre member or if somebody wanted Indeed. to join, you could find something for them to do probably. We definitely could. And let me also state that um, we work closely with um, BaseballReference.com. And so if you go on to the, um, the Baseball Ref player page for, for example, uh, Ron Santo, you will see up on the top left-hand corner under the biography information for the player, you'll also see a link to his Baseball Reference, oh, excuse me, to his Sabre bio page. So we really work closely with, with uh, Baseball Ref and, um, and RetroSheet to make sure that we're all linked together, that uh, we're working together in that regard. Well, Gregory Wolf, editor of Wrigley Field, The Friendly Confines at Clark and Addison. Uh, my own personal contribution to this volume was so minimal that I feel very free to praise this book effusively and say this is an absolute triumph in the field of baseball research. Congratulations to you and your associate editors on this achievement. We will be savoring this book all summer and for a long time to come. Thanks for talking about Wrigley Field today, and thanks for your time. I uh, really appreciate Nathan, and I hope to talk to you again in the future. Gregory Wolf is the editor of Wrigley Field, The Friendly Confines at Clark and Addison, newly published from the Society for American Baseball Research. Wolf is professor of German studies at North Central College in Naperville, Illinois. He is a member of the Society for American Baseball Research, for which he has edited nine books. I'm Nathan Bierma. You've been listening to New Books in Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.